Hey, good morning, everybody. My name is Caleb, and I'm with Emmaus Ministries, and just a couple quick things before we get into the message for this morning, but um, outside you'll see a table with some, uh, some slides scrolling through some information and some, uh, some sign-up opportunities, but Emmaus uh, is the ministry I work with primarily here. I am the director of Emmaus Ministries with a few other staff uh, that work along with me, and our, our heart, our mission is to equip the body of Christ with the Word of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ, and we do that. Uh, through teaching how to engage the scriptures, how to engage with them in their historical context, how to learn how to study the Bible. Because we believe that knowing the Bible can absolutely change a life. And we have a few different ways we do that. Uh, one thing I love doing is just be able to partner with churches just like this um, and be able to be a part of what that church community is doing. And we've been really blessed, my family and I, uh, to, to connect here at Core Faith and just be, be uh, uh, partners together in mission and ministry here in this area. But we have some programs, and just two I want to let you know about. One is an evening course called the Biblical Narrative Series. That'll be next fall. So both these things will be starting up again next fall. So as you think through your plans for next year, to consider doing this. The Biblical Narrative Series, we have an Old Testament course in the fall, New Testament course in the spring that really does all 66 books, basic understanding of the context and history and how to engage, some tools on how to engage every single book of the Bible. Um, and the other program, you can find out more about that out there or ask me afterwards. The other program is our School of Biblical Studies, which we're very blessed to have Cheryl uh, in that school with us right now, which meets during the days twice a week and is just an immersive deep dive into all 66 books of the Bible. Uh, she can vouch for the fact it's a different kind of year than you'll spend any other time in your life. Um, and we believe it's absolutely life transforming. And uh, I did it. It was a, the thing that God used in my life to take me from, I was a pastor for seven years before I did that, and um, I just so happened, I, I was a pastor for seven years and didn't really deeply understand the scriptures. And so it was very difficult. Uh, just so you know, if you're a pastor and you don't really deeply have your heart rooted in the scriptures, it's a really hard job. It's a really, really hard job because you're flipping around trying to find answers to the questions of the people around you or things to support the topic you want to talk about that week. And it is exhausting. And it is an exhausting thing to be a human being without an understanding of the gospel rooted in the scriptures. And so for me, the nature of God, the understanding of the gospel, the understanding of my life, it all came from really for me that year of immersing myself in the Bible. So if you're interested in either of those programs, ask me about it afterwards or, or just sign up to get some information about that out there. But I'm going to go ahead and pray and jump into today's message. So Lord, we thank you for your grace. God, I thank you for the worship. I thank you for the chance to gather together as brothers and sisters, fellow children of God. And Lord, that we can look to you. We can look to the freedom we have in you. We can look to what you have done for us. And even as worship moved us through that movement of, of we have received from you, we have freedom. And now we want to take that freedom and we want to use it to completely surrender ourselves to you. Lord, it's a really radical idea to be free people who then surrender themselves to the, uh, the leadership and the direction of another. But Lord, we want to do that today. And Lord, I pray that my words would reflect that. That Lord, what I would say today would not be my words, but you would speak. And Holy Spirit, the best preaching is always done when you're the one leading the way. And all of us, including the person with the microphone, are listening and following your point. So Lord, I just right now submit myself to you and may the Words of my mouth and the meditations of our heart be pleasing in your sight. Because you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. All right, so I'm going to tell you a little story before we get moving in the message. And I'm going to give you a little history lesson. All right, and just because I really like telling stories, so I'm going to do this. All right, so Fabius Maximus, a story about him. And you can bring up this first slide. Should have a little, 
little art here. Okay, this is an image of early in the Roman Empire. This is an image of a moment in history where there was a, a Roman uh, uh, ambassador named Quintus Fabius Maximus coming before the senators of the city of Carthage. Now, you didn't know you were going to get all this history this morning, so you're about to get some information. All right, so here's what had happened in Carthage. They had rebelled, or they had, they had acted out, Carthage had, against, they had attacked an, an ally of Rome. And when they did so, Rome, the Senate of Rome, in the early days of the Roman Empire, sent a respected older senator named Quintus Fabius Maximus to go to Carthage to inquire of their Senate to say, which of these two options is it? Is it that you have attacked one of our allies because it was just an act of a rebel commander of yours named Hannibal? Or is this the act of Carthage itself, so you want to be in opposition to Rome? And so Fabius Maximus comes before them, and he stands before them and says, which of these was it? And the Senate, they're angry, they're, they're all raucous, and they yell at him, and they say, ah, which, what is it to you? It doesn't matter, we don't have to answer to you. And so Fabius Maximus, in an epic moment, took up his toga in both hands, one side of his toga, and he said, in this hand I hold peace, in this hand I hold war, which do you choose? And they said, whichever you please, we don't care. And so he dropped one side of the toga, and he said, we give you war. I mean, come on, right? It's epic. I feel like I'm about to walk. It's like gladiator or something like that. So he drops it. We give you war. Now, now I tell you that story for, for two reasons, all right? Number one is it's epic, right? It's awesome, and it's fun for me to think about. I just think it's so cool, and it's got a toga involved. But I tell you it for a more important reason, that Fabius Maximus, he was functioning in a very important role in the early Roman Empire, in the Roman Empire, the role of an ambassador an ambassador of Rome. So when he comes there, he does not come there just representing himself, right? But he comes there with this significant role of being an, a mediator of these two sides. Now, as, as the Roman Empire progressed, we see eventually there's an emperor that leads Rome. And this role of being an ambassador of Rome continued to be a very significant and high-ranking role for those that were really uh, persuasive and really gifted people. But I want you to think about just a couple things. If you're in the Roman Empire, you knew this. Because the passage we're going to look at today, if you were the readers of that passage, you would know about this role, an ambassador of Rome. And so just think about this, first of all, is that an ambassador represented the emperor, right? So the ambassador, if they showed up, they didn't represent themselves. In fact, they were really irrelevant. Their own name was irrelevant to the situation. They came to represent the emperor to you. All right, so that was the role. Now, an ambassador could go to a lot of different things. In fact, we still do this today. We send ambassadors to things like Olympics, right? sporting events or big diplomatic gatherings and things like that. And it was just like that back in those days of the Roman Empire. But the most important role that an ambassador of Rome could be given would be being giving and trusted with the ministry of reconciliation. In that role, and just like what Fabius Maximus was in, you would come to someone who was currently in a position of being an enemy of your emperor, and you would offer them a way to peace. It was, hey, what do you want your relationship to be with the emperor? I come as an ambassador representing the emperor, and I come to you with a message that there is a way by which you who are enemies of the emperor could become his friends. And so you would offer them this. And usually, if you were an ambassador, that would mean, and so all you got to do is give all your land to Rome, and you can be friends of Rome. All you got to do is pay 25% of your income in taxes, and you can be a friend of Rome. But there would be some measure of cost. So, but, but ultimately, you came, you represent the emperor to those who are currently his enemies, and you say to them, here is the means by which you have the opportunity 
to become a friend of the powerful emperor. And so you held in your hands in those moments a ministry of life or death. That they could choose one of these two things. Now, that's important. Now, the way that the ambassadors would do this was through something, we all use the word like persuasive, right? But actually in the world, the Greek world and then the Roman Empire, this art of persuasion, of being able to convince someone else of, of your way of, of thinking, your, your perspective, it was an art form. In fact, there was whole um, art, art gatherings or philosophy gatherings that were dedicated to people who were the most skilled being persuasive. And that was the number one role of this ambassador of Rome, was to be persuasive. So I say that to say again, that as we look at this passage we're going to go to today, and you can turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians 5, we should not think that this book, this letter of 2 Corinthians, just floated down from the sky somewhere, and Paul was just randomly snatching words and descriptions out of the air. But Paul writes to a world that is very aware of this very significant role of an ambassador. And they are very aware of this type of ministry an ambassador could carry, this ministry of reconciliation. Let's go to 2 Corinthians 5. 2 Corinthians 5, we're going to start in verse 11. In verse 11, it says this at the very beginning of that passage. Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. Now, pause there for a second. Let me just give you a little context. Right before this, Paul has, has set up this idea. That all the people of Christ, he recognized himself, all the people, ultimately all people are going to come before the Lord and have an account for what they, how they have lived their life. Now, I want you to think about that reality, that the natural progression it would seem to the human intellect is that if everyone's going to come to before the Lord and make an account for how they've lived, that then the following verses would speak about how to behave right. Right? You would say, oh, you would think, okay, if Paul's going to, he's saying, I'm going to have an account before the Lord, I want to tell him all the good things I did and how, how good a boy I was, right? How well I behaved. Now, it's not that we shouldn't walk in those things and good, good things, and we should. But it's interesting to note that Paul's immediate language after that is having a fear and reverence for the God that I know I'm going to answer before, it motivates me not just to try to like make sure I don't make any mistakes, but what it really motivates me to do is to persuade men, to persuade people. That just like the ambassador would have, have, would have to go back eventually and report to the emperor what the results were of their role, their persuasion, Paul says, since I have to report to God eventually, I, I, I want to, when I stand before him, I want to make sure that I'm spending my life to persuade others. What Paul wants to be able to tell the Lord is I sought to persuade others. Now, Bishop last week, he emphasized something I thought was really good. I listened to the message, and he said this, that you're in the series Lost and Found, Defending the Faith, right? So in defending the faith, he said this, that our motivation to defend the faith should not just be preservation, but expansion. He talked about the prodigal son and that ministry there, but not just preservation, but expansion. And I was thinking about that, because when I heard defend the faith, and lost and found, we defend the faith, you know, the book of Jude, I think you've been walking, wrestling with the book of Jude some, uh, Second Peter deals with it as well, contending for the faith, and I was thinking about, well, how, how does 
the outward ministry of the church fit in with defending the faith? Because often we think of defending the faith, we primarily think about protecting the truth, the true doctrine, right? But I was, I was considering that. I thought, you know what? Defending the faith is really, I was thinking about three different things. Number one, defending the faith is protecting the truth, the true doctrine of the gospel, right? That the true gospel is preached. Number two is, is defending the faith, the faithful life. How do we protect faithful living? And then third of all, and what we're focused on today is defending the faith is about guarding the true mission of this community of faith, the true mission of the community of faith. So as we, as we move into this, look at verses 18 through 20. It says this in verse 18 of chapter 5. Paul says, now all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. That's chapter 5, verse 18 through 20, right there in 2 Corinthians. So here's what I want you to think about. Paul is writing to these Christians, and he says to them, hey, knowing the fear of the Lord that we're going to report before him eventually, therefore we try to persuade others. And he's going to go on in verse 18 to 20, and where we're going with this is he's going to say, hey, you know that role that you all are acquainted with, the ambassador of Rome? You know that important ministry they have of life and death that they go to, to those who are enemies of the emperor and offer them a means by which to become his friends? That is exactly what it looks like to live out the mission of the church. That's exactly what it looks like to be, uh, live out the ministry of the church. And you see it there. The repeated word there is reconciled. God has reconciled us to himself. He's given us the ministry of reconciliation. In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. He's committed to us the word of reconciliation. It's all over that, that that is what our ministry is. So here's what we see in terms of a purpose statement. And we have to make sure to guard this truth, that we exist to be ambassadors of Christ, entrusted with the message of reconciliation with God. And you'll see it here on the screen. That we exist to be ambassadors of Christ, entrusted with the message of reconciliation with God. That's why we exist. Now, I know we all have different jobs. We do a lot of different things. We've got different careers, different education, different skills, all that stuff. But ultimately, the reason we exist as followers of Jesus, and we don't get saved and then get taken out of this world, the reason we continue to live and breathe in this world is for this reason, to be an ambassador for Christ, entrusted with the message of reconciliation with God. Now, sometimes I have found that this word reconciliation within our, within our world, when we talk about being people of reconciliation, we often will focus on people being reconciled with people. I, and I am all for that idea. But when we think about the ministry of, of the church, the ministry that we are called to, what we have to be careful about is that the goal of the ministry of reconciliation is not that you become my friend. The goal of the ministry of reconciliation is not that you like me. Now listen, I hope y'all like me. All right? My, I like everybody to like me. My wife will vouch for that. I like when people like me. I don't like when people dislike me. But you know, everyone I know could like me and I could be failing in the ministry of reconciliation. If the goal of my life, in fact, is always to have everyone like me, then it will actually hinder me 
from being free to speak the truth of the gospel. And so part of this role of being an ambassador for Christ is to recognize, you know what? If I had to choose, I would rather you be my enemy and God's friend than be my friend and God's enemy. That's what I'd rather have. And even as I say it, I think, Caleb, do you really feel that truthfully in your heart? Partly. (laughs) But I know it's true. I know it's true. So what does an ambassador of Christ look like? And you know, this idea of being Christ's ambassador, what I want to interact with for a minute here is one of the reasons we got to defend this ministry of being ambassador of Christ with the ministry of reconciliation is that it's under assault by so many different things in our world. And one of those things is this idea of a cancel culture, right? So cancel culture. Now, there's, there's all kinds of expressions of this. And if you look up the definition of cancel culture, there's, there's real big corporate versions of this, or real big like social versions of this with social media or whatever it may be, where somebody has uh, offended in some way or committed some immoral act or have some, some offensive thing they've done, and so they get canceled. Maybe pe- people in a big group, they don't buy their products anymore or frequent their business, or they, or they uh, sh- publicly shame them on social media, whatever that is, right? I'm not talking necessarily about that, but here's, here's what's often happened, is that this general big cultural thing, this cancel culture, has quickly become the way in which we do human relationships as well. Hey, who offends me? I'm, I can't wait almost. I'm eagerly looking, ready to be offended so that I can eliminate someone from my life and publicly shame them. So I can slander them, right? I don't know if you all have social media. That's like what we do with social media, right? I can't wait till somebody posts something that ticks me off so I can tell people about it and then get in their comments and just blast them. I can't wait. But if that culture starts to infect the way we live as the followers of Jesus, it starts to drive the way we relate with the world around us, it actually will completely disrupt the ministry of reconciliation we're called to. Because ambassadors of Christ are very unconcerned with their own opinions. Ambassadors of Christ are concerned with the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we have to consider how do we defend the mission of our faith against a cancer culture. And there's really two sides of that. that. If I'm looking to cancel others all the time, eliminate them from my life, get offended at them, it'll hinder me from being able to deliver to them the ministry of reconciliation with God. All right? Because let me just say something we should probably anticipate. Human beings are going to do some stuff that really makes us mad. Especially someone who does not have the Spirit of God directing their life. Of course they're going to say things and do things that are going to offend us. Offend our opinion. Offend our feelings. But if we're looking to just shut them out, it, it will end up hindering us from being able to engage the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And secondly, if we're afraid of being canceled ourselves... We won't speak the truth of the gospel either. So this thing stands as a barrier, as an assault, really, against the mission of the church. Now, before we get to chapter 18 through 20, or verses 18 through 20 there, Paul had already went through and, and described some attributes of the kind of person 
who actually lives out the mission of the church as an ambassador of Christ. So let's look back at verse 13. 5 verse 13, and here's what it says there. For if we are beside ourselves, Paul says, it is for God. Or if we are of sound mind, it is for you. What is Paul saying there? That beside ourselves basically means if we are, if we seem crazy, if we seem out of our mind, if what we are speaking seems foolish, it's for the glory of God. It's for the glory of God. I mean, think about this reality. The gospel, Paul says it in 1 Corinthians, the gospel is foolishness. We preach Christ crucified, he says. To the, to the Gentiles, it is foolishness. Why? It is. If you don't believe that Jesus is the Son of God, the Savior of the world that's been resurrected, then the idea that, hey, hey, listen, there's this dude, this, just this random guy, just a human being, and he got executed as a criminal outside Jerusalem. If you're in Corinth, that's like hundreds of miles away. It's nothing to do with your life. And guess what? The way that you can be saved from your sins and have eternal life and be right with God is to believe that that guy that was killed outside Jerusalem as a criminal is actually the son of God. You're tripping. <laughs> That's crazy, right? If you don't believe that, of course it's foolishness. And Paul says, hey, if we are beside ourselves, if we seem out of our minds, it is for the glory of God. And if we are in our, of sound mind, meaning what we have said has come to make sense to your, your mind and your heart, then it's for your benefit, it's for you. And we see this, that an ambassador of Christ lives for the glory of God and the benefit of others. An ambassador of Christ lives for the glory of God and the benefit of others. Now, that's countercultural. And it's counter flesh. Listen, when we, we say all this stuff about culture around us, and you know what? If, when I really just look at my own flesh, I'm like, oh yeah, the culture looks just like my flesh does. I fight the same battle right here that I see being fought in the world around me. Do you know what our culture says? Live for your glory. Live for your glory. Live for your fame. Climb the ladder. Get the praise of people. But an ambassador of Christ does not do that. When Fabius Maximus stands before the, the, Carthage, the senators of Carthage, he is irrelevant. He is significant in his role but he is irrelevant in terms of, oh, you know what I bring to the table? Do you know what my education is? Do you know how good of a communicator I am? That's not relevant. What's relevant is who he represents and who he's standing in front of. An ambassador of Christ lives for the glory of God and the benefit of others. Our culture says, no, 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 live for your glory and in, in interact in your relationships, steward relationships in whatever way will make your life easiest and best. And that's not how an ambassador of Christ is called to live, for the glory of God and the benefit of others. In fact, it goes on in verse 14, and he says this, for the love of Christ compels us because we judge thus, that if one died for all, then all died. Now, we're going to interact with two ideas here as we walk in verse 14 and 15, but here, here's what he's saying. The love of Christ compels us. That word compels means constrains, directs us. And even, I have a word on this, on the point here, but I almost want to change it already as I've been thinking about this more. But here's what we see. An ambassador of Christ is motivated by the love of Christ. I even like, instead of motivated, directed is probably a better word. That the, the, the ambassador of Christ is directed by the love of Christ. Why don't you think for a minute about the person you most, it's okay. Don't point at them. Before I say this, don't point. 
all right? Think about the person you most despise, right? You most dislike. That's, think, think about the person in your life that's the hardest person for you to care about, all right? We all got somebody. Listen, here's the deal. When Paul wrote this letter of 2 Corinthians, they all had somebody that came to mind too. Now, some of y'all, I know you had three, four people, and right now you're trying to decide which one is the absolute worst, but you got a whole category, right? You got a whole class of people that you're like, ah, this is my whole group. I don't really like that much. All right. The Corinthian people had that too. In fact, if you read 1 Corinthians, you're going to find they're pointing at each other, despising each other, ranking one another. It is a mess in Corinth. Corinth is just like our country, very much. Of all the cities of the New Testament world, Corinth is probably the most like the United States. I mean, it's, it's crazy there. And those people in Corinth that read Paul's letter, they had somebody that came to mind too. And think about how crazy it is to say, one died for all. And we're talking here about Christ. And that what is to direct our life is Christ's love directs our life in our relationship with the world around us. An ambassador of Christ is motivated, is directed by the love of Christ. Live for the glory of God, for the benefit of others, and be directed by the love of Christ. Those are pretty basic things, you know. They're pretty basic. I think you could have like 50 sermons and they all would interact with those three ideas. You know why? Because that's pretty much what our life is about. That's pretty much what our life is about. You know, we can all get fixated on the little fraction of our life that is so unique in our personal story. But most of the life of those who are in Christ, I've died and my life is hidden with Christ and God. If we're actually all, for me to live as Christ, then guess what? We all live in the same way. There's one Christ, and if for me to live is Christ, for us to live is for Christ to live, then guess what? Our lives all pretty much got the same basic functions. Glorify God, serve the world around us, and become like Christ in demonstrating the love and truth to the world. That's it. We spend so much time in our life just scrambling around trying to figure out that little outer layer of our life. What career should I be in? Oh, God, please tell me what to do with my life. He's like, I did. I did. I did. Whatever job you're in, glorify God. Serve the people around you and, and become like Christ. Oh, you changed jobs? Guess what? You didn't change your life purpose. It's the same. Same thing. Well, yeah, yeah, but I just got a new degree. Okay, it's great. Great, but that's not what our life is ultimately about. And what we see with this idea of being directed and motivated by the love of Christ and our relationship with the world, what we see is this, that, that my interaction with you really has more to do with what Christ has done for you than what you have done to me. Think about that. The way I interact with my neighbors, the way I interact with my coworkers, my family members, the primary dictator, the primary leadership of how I interact with the world around me is what Christ has done for you, not what you have done to me. I'm not reacting to you. No, I'm responding to the work of Christ. That is a different way of interacting than our world does. It goes on in verse 15, and he just keeps on pushing. What does it look like to be ambassador of Christ? Oh, come on, Paul. This is getting heavier. It's getting more uncomfortable for me. He goes on in 15 and says this, and he, that's Christ, died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. All right, thanks, Paul. 
What's he saying there? An ambassador of Christ doesn't live for themselves. An ambassador of Christ doesn't live for themselves. Paul is saying this, and, and I said already, Paul says, I died. When Paul speaks about the gospel, he speaks about his existence in this world. Once he's put faith in Jesus, he says this, I died and my life was hidden with Christ and God. For me to live is Christ. Take up your cross and follow Jesus. That's what Jesus called us to do, to lay down your life and pick up his. And Paul says this, hey, when Christ died and was raised, by faith, Christ's death and resurrection has become my death and resurrection. And the me-centered life died and was laid in the grave at baptism. And I was raised to a new kind of life that is not a me-centered life. This idea of not living for myself, that is a hard thing to believe, right? It's a hard thing to think, hold on, you're telling me that it is a better version of life to not live for myself than to live for myself? Doesn't make any sense. Doesn't make any sense. And here's what I'll say. Pretty much everything Jesus says doesn't make any sense until you start living that way. And you find out, what we find out over and over again is we find out that what looks upside down to us is only because our world is upside down in the first place. Wait, wait, so laying down my life and and self-denial and saying, you know, I'm not gonna live to serve my own needs. I'm gonna lay down my life self-sacrificially and that's gonna produce a better life. That seems upside down until you do it and you find out I've been upside down my whole life. Because really and truly, the life laid down is a better version of life. Because you're not spending all your time laying awake at night trying to preserve your stuff. I want to keep my stuff. I want to get more stuff. I want to get people to like me, whatever it is. You're free. Freedom is found in saying, hey, nothing is mine. My life belongs to God. My life exists to be a conduit of his grace and of his truth to the world. And to die is gain. That's freedom. That's a better version of life. I mean, think about this. By the time Paul writes this, he's been beaten, persecuted, mocked, left for dead, and imprisoned. And yet he says things over and over like, rejoice always. He speaks of joy. He speaks of peace in his life. Wait, Paul, I don't think you know what those mean because you're not on vacation and you're not comfortable. You don't have a house you're staying at sometimes. You're sitting in a prison cell. You walk maybe hunched over because you've had broken bones in your back that have not healed properly and you can't get to the chiropractor. All right. Paul, I don't think you know what it means to live a life that brings joy and peace because you aren't prosperous. You aren't rich. You aren't famous. Paul, I don't think you get it. And Paul would say, you don't get it. I found a better way of life. I'm an ambassador of one much greater than I. And I live this life. This life of sacrifice, I live it when the joy of his presence and the peace of of relationship with him. And I know I have eternal life with him. That's the good life. That's the good life. He goes on in verses 16 and 17. It says this. Therefore, from now on, now that therefore means it, it's, a, it's a connective, not to get you into like our school where we mark things up in the Bible, but like that means this, based on what we just said, that he died for all, so those who live no longer live for themselves, right? But for him who died for them and rose, uh, and rose again. All right, 
Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh. We regard no one. We don't evaluate anyone based on their external, uh, uh, what I can observe of their flesh or their behavior. We regard no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him thus no longer. What it's saying here is, when you come to know Christ differently than just evaluating him by the flesh, but you understand who he is, when you come to understand Christ differently, we are also called to then view, the, view others differently. We evaluate others in a different way as well. It goes on in verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now, what's interesting there, and, and rightfully so, we often take that passage to speak about our new identity, right? We are a new creation. Old things have passed away. All has become new. And we, we take it and primarily think about being a new creation in terms of what we aren't anymore, right? That I am not my past. That stuff is gone. It's been taken from me. Oh, my sins and my transgressions have been removed from me as far as the east is from the west. And yes and amen to that. But a new creation now has a new way of living as well. So when we think of being a new creation in Christ, we often look backwards and say, this is what, not, what I'm not anymore. But I think what Paul is maybe focused on more is, and this is who I am now. This is how I live now as this new kind of human that has been raised with Christ. We re regard no one according to the flesh. What we find as we look through Paul's writing is this idea that ambassador of Christ sees people through the eyes of Christ. They see people through the eye of Christ, eyes of Christ. You think about some of these ideas and, and, and putting them together, and what we see is cancel culture is going to tell us, relate with the world around you based on what they've done, about, done to you and what you think about them. So therefore, interact with the world according to that. What they've done and how you see them. Just do that. Just judge people all around like that. And then Paul says, wait, I think you forgot. You're not the king. You're the ambassador. And the ambassador is primarily motivated not by what they have done to me, but what the king has done for them. And an ambassador doesn't put on their lenses to evaluate the situation. An ambassador is to say, look, it's actually how Christ views you that's more important than how I view you. So I'm going to agree with Christ. Because here's the deal. I find a lot of gaps between Christ's opinion and my opinion. Guess who's wrong? It isn't him, right? It isn't him. Ambassador of Christ sees people through the eyes of Christ. So if we're going to do this ministry, if we're going to defend it, we have to defend it against our own flesh. And we have to defend it against the culture around us that's saying, hey, 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 no, no, don't be an ambassador. Don't be a person, a minister of reconciliation with God. Instead, cancel people. Get those people out of your life. Never, never associate with them. Right? Never talk to them again. And we do it in the church too, right? We do it in the church as well all the time. We eliminate people from our life, from our community, because of we get offended, right? But Paul says there is a better way. Let's keep pushing forward here as we, we, we move towards the end. Chapter 5, verse 18 through 21. Paul continues writing. It says, now all things 
are of God. That's good news. All things are of God. Who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. Now think about that. Paul does this over and over in Corinthians and all throughout. In fact, 2 Corinthians has a multiple chapters that describes what the ministry is of the people of God. Chapter 3, we're ministers of the new covenant. Chapter 4, we carry this treasure in jars of clay. The light of the gospel is shown in our hearts to show the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. It shows through us as jars of clay that are pressed and broken, but pressed but not crushed, persecuted, not abandoned. You know that passage. And now in 5, he says, and we are ministers of reconciliation, but we do this as a reflection of what Christ has done for us. All we do is reflect Christ's ministry to the world around us. He has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Not imputing their trespasses to them. That means not counting their sins against them. Here's the deal. We will always have a very hard time proclaiming a gospel of reconciliation. That if that by grace through faith, reconciliation is a gift from God where God will no longer count your sins against you, we will have a really hard time preaching that message when we're counting people's sins against them ourselves. Right? We will. In our culture, it's become defined by outrage. Everybody's just mad at everybody all the time. And we rage against one another. And more than that, we rage about other people. But that is not the way of Christ. That is not the way of Christ to be outraged and to shut people out and to stop engaging with, with other people. It's antichrist to just spend our life looking for opportunities to, be, uh, to despise someone and withdraw from them. That's an antichrist way of life to say, hey, I'm just looking for the next chance I can to who can I despise next? Who can I withdraw myself from but instead to say, no, no, no. I'm called to this ministry of reconciliation. I am called to mirror what Christ did for me, that while I was a sinner, Christ died for me. In verse 20 and 21, he focuses in and says this, Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. As though God were pleading through us. Or it says in the ESV, it says, as though God were making his appeal through us. Be reconciled to God. Verse 21, for he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Here's the crazy thing. When the emperor of Rome would send an ambassador to somebody who he wanted to establish an alliance with, that would always be at the cost of the lesser party. If the emperor of Rome sent an ambassador, the ambassador would come and would tell you what you needed to do 
or else, right? And the, the emperor would have not made any investment in this himself other than just saying, hey, give me money, give me your land, and then we won't crush you, right? But here's the crazy twist of this role Paul says the church has. The king who knew no sin. The king who knew no sin became sin for us so that we could become the righteousness of God in him. That the initiating action of this reconciliation, the, the, the great cost of this reconciliation was paid by the king, the perfect one who'd done no wrong, to reconcile enemies to him, to become his friend. Romans 5, it says it in this way, for when we were still without strength, Christ died for the ungodly. He goes on and says, God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, having been reconciled, we should be saved by his life. Not only that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Our world is filled with people who desperately need to hear the word of reconciliation. They are. Now, they aren't, they aren't telling us that, right? I don't know. Maybe you do, but when I'm at Winn-Dixie, nobody ever stops me and goes, hey, I was just thinking today I need to hear the gospel. Can you share with me the gospel of how I can be reconciled to God? No, no, no. But here's what the cry looks like. The cry looks like just trying all types of immorality to satisfy a broken heart. It looks like pursuing and accumulating the idol of wealth in order to try to climb a ladder but constantly striving and never feeling any sense of peace in their life. It looks like people who are just angry all the time trying to figure out whose fault it is that they don't feel whole within themselves. It looks like addictions and bondage and all kinds of different things and it's all, all it is is people waiting for the church to do what we're called to do, to be ministers of reconciliation. Not to get people to like us, but to reconcile people to God. You know, I hear a lot of times this idea, and rightfully so, that, hey, we need God to do something in our country. We need God to do something in our country. And I say yes and amen to that. But let me also say this. May we not forget that God has done something for our country. God has done something for our country. He sent his son, born in the flesh. He, he spent 30 years living this life, sinless perfection. Then for three years, traveled around and proclaimed the kingdom of God had come in him. And through him was the way to relationship with the Father. He then died on the cross for our sins, was raised again to life so that we could have resurrection life. And then those who believe in him, he fills with his spirit and commissions them to go into the world and proclaim a gospel that will literally resurrect dead hearts and transform lives and communities. So I just want to caution us that sometimes when we say, hey, we need God to do something in our country, God is saying, I have done something for your country. Why don't you join me? Why don't you join me? Because if everything about our culture changed but the church didn't proclaim the, ministry, the message of reconciliation with God, then it would not matter. 
We could have a utopian society that is exactly however you and I think it should look. But if the gospel isn't really preached to dead hearts, then it doesn't matter. A thousand years from now, it will not matter at all eternally. So we need to remind our hearts, hey, what is it that we are, when we say defending the faith, what we're doing is saying, hey, let's draw a circle around what the faith looks like and what it looked like 2,000 years ago for the people to follow Jesus Christ. And let's draw a circle around that and let's, let's build a wall around that. Let's protect that. Let's guard that. And that means guarding the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, whether it's popular or it's not popular. Guarding the way of life of the people who follow Jesus, whether that way of life is popular or unpopular, and defining our mission, not according to what our culture says or even what the church might say in the world around us, but saying, hey, what is the, what is the mission of the church? And saying, no, I'm going to guard that whether it's popular or unpopular. And I'm telling you that for 2,000 years, the mission of the church has been to be representatives of Christ proclaiming to the world the message of reconciliation. And that's our call. So I want to challenge us today, and then I'm going to pray want to challenge us to refuse to cancel people in our lives, but to pursue them with the grace of God. I want to challenge us to refuse to hate people. Refuse to hate people, but demonstrate to them Christ's love. Because the cancel culture shuts people out, but the mission of Christ sends us out. It sends us out into a world that we should fully expect to be broken. Let me pray for us, and then I'm going to hand it off to Lewis. God, you have done something. You have done the thing for us. You have sent your son that we could be reconciled through his death, resurrection. We could be reconciled to you. We who were your enemies are now your friends. And God, you have done that for us. And you have done something for the world. And that it, There's not going to be another great sacrifice. There's not going to be another cross. The cross has already occurred. And you've done that for our nation and every nation. And so, Lord, I pray that you would compel our hearts to be your ambassadors and to carry the message of reconciliation to the world around us. Lord, I pray you'd bless this church community. I pray that as a result of the people in this church, not only would more people just come to this church, but, Lord, that more people would know you. That, Lord, the mission of this church would, co- would go outward into our city and our community. And as a result, people would become reconciled to you when they hear the life-changing, powerful gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, we love you, praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.